multilateral institutions with liberal, the liberal traditions of the League of Nations and all this kind of thing, Bretton Woods institutions. Um, but actually, like some of these early <laughs> ideas about international economic institutions came from the neo-mercantilist side. Instantly, List himself, you know, had, uh, came up with the idea of a World Trade Organization uh, in the 1830s. And, you know, maybe that's even the first one. I haven't had time to figure out if that's one of the first, um, but very early on, right? And, 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 and it actually kind of makes sense because uh, if you're a free, if you're a Cobdenite, like a Cobdenite free trader in the mid 19th century, you're saying everyone should just, you know, go free trade, you don't need any institutions, just do it unilaterally. And yet here, if you're a protectionist, like List is, you're saying, uh, no, you know, I want people to be protectionists, but then immediately the question is raised, well, how do they relate to each other? And you're gonna have to negotiate, right? You're gonna have to negotiate trade between two protectionist countries. And so it's natural that you begin to think about, well, what are, the, what are the patterns of that negotiation? Maybe you need some multilateral form in which to do that. And that is the, the conclusion that list comes to in the 1830s incidentally that's not in his 1841 book and so welcome to reviving growth keynesianism a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality growth and aggregate demand so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're joined by Eric Helener, who is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo, specializing in international political economy and the history of political economy. You know and love him from such works as his 1994 book, States and the Emergence of Global Finance, his 2003 book, The Making of National Money, Territorial Currencies and Historical Perspective, and The Forgotten Foundations of Bretton Woods, International Development and the Making of the Post-War Order, to name just a few of his titles. Today, we're here to talk about his brand new book, The Neo-Mercantilists, A Global Intellectual History, which is hot off the press with Cornell this December. As you can tell, he's been working in a lot of these uh, thematic areas for a while now, but this book represents a turn towards uh, intellectual history and the global circulation of ideas. So uh, we're excited to talk with him. Uh, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You know, when you, when you work on an idea for so many years, I think I've been working on this for six or seven years. It's just so nice when people are interested. So thanks for inviting me. Oh, we're very glad to have you. Um, so we, we like to start off usually by asking our guests, um, you know, how you got into uh, academics in general and into uh, this topic in particular. Right. So maybe on the first question, I mean, I was an economics student and uh, kind of came late to political economy, really quite late in my undergrad degree. And then I actually uh, intended to do a master's in economics, but I stumbled upon um, a program that Susan Strange had created. I think it was in its only third year at that time at the London School of Economics, which was called Politics of the World Economy. It apparently was supposed to be called International Political Economy, but some higher ups at the LSE objected to that title. So she called it the politics of the world economy. And I, I just sort of looked at the reading list and said, this is exactly what I want to do. And I've been in love with the subject of IPE, or some people call it GPE, global political economy, uh, ever since. But, but it, was a, it, it was an interesting moment because that was kind of the mid 80s. And the field was just taking off. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, um, I had a funny experience when I decided to enter that program. One of the advisors said to me, well, 
uh, you know, I'm not sure I'd recommend this program. It's very interesting, but this field is is not going to last. And so, you know, if you want to have a job one day, you should stick stick with economics or political science. And, you know, I sort of said, well, it looks interesting. I'll give it a try. And then, you know, with the end of the Cold War and everything, that basically IPE became one of the fastest growing areas of the social sciences. But at that time, it was it was very much a fledgling uh, field. I'm sort of curious what the, what the politics of... Um naming was what the difference between international political economy politics of the world global political economy yeah i i uh, i've heard different stories about that and i actually don't know which one is true um but i think there was a sense that international political economy uh, I, I think the, i think it was the economists if i remember right and the most of the stories i've heard who were worried about that title for some reason uh, as, as a master's degree title so for some reason politics of the world economy sounded less objectionable the neo-mercantilists, um, it seems to me, is responding very much to our own current moment and the rise of our own neo-mercantilists in the form of Trump and uh, uh, Xi Jinping. Is that sort of what inspired you to go back into um, the intellectual roots of these ideas? Uh, yeah, it's certainly one motivation. It's not the only motivation, but, but you know, I began writing this before Trump was elected, although Xi Jinping was certainly in power at the time. Um, but but you know if I were to be fully honest, the the book came out of another angle initially. I'm I'm writing and have almost finished a, a broader global intellectual history of the field of IP before 1945. So trying to uh, trying to tell students, you know, this isn't a field that just began in the 1970s, but has roots in Smith and Keynes and Marx and all these other thinkers and. And, uh, and when it came to writing the chapters on neo-mercantilists thought, I went to the textbooks and certainly very familiar with List and Hamilton and figures like that who are associated with neo-mercantilists thought. But I realized very quickly that my understanding, uh, but also I would say the understanding of most people in my field uh, was, I thought, incorrect. And so this book essentially emerged from that. But as you say, it then coincided with this, um, the election of Trump. And, and I would say, you know, trends in other countries as well, including my own in Canada, uh, where we're seeing yeah, rising, um, uh, growing popularity of neo-mercantilist ideas. And so I thought, well, you know, this is a big problem I have to solve anyway. And it's kind of important that people understand this history better. And I was particularly struck by the fact that, you know, I didn't see someone like Trump or someone like Xi Jinping that, you know, two major powers in the world are now embracing this kind of ideology. I didn't see either of them informed by Frederick List's ideas, who is a central figure that we're presenting to students in the classroom. And so I'd go into the classroom and say, Frederick List is the founder of this tradition. And then I'd jump to the current period and it made no sense. Like there's a huge disconnect there because Trump would never refer to List or Xi Jinping would never refer to List. And so I, I was drawn out of the kind of exasperation with how we're teaching this history in a way that didn't seem to connect to the current world. Yeah, maybe, maybe on that and for listeners who might be outside of the field of IP or, or um, G, GP, I guess. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how intellectual history or the history of ideas fits into um, international political economy and maybe uh, specifically the role of list, uh, but also maybe why you know some of these misconceptions, as you say, um, are being taught and how, how they kind of arose in the first place. Yeah, so I can just tell the, the quick history of that. So the modern field of IP comes up in the 1970s, beginning kind of with the Nixon shock and the new international economic order and the oil price shock and a broad sense uh, of people who had been in international relations that, that you know, they couldn't just study security issues, they had to study 
economic issues, but also at the same time, international economists who are recognizing the importance of the political foundation of global markets. So that's the kind of initial merger that creates the field. And very quickly, it got established that, oh, well, you know, we're creating a new field, but really we know it has roots in the earlier thought of Adam Smith and the liberal tradition, Karl Marx in terms of theories of imperialism. Uh, and, and then there was always this third category that was presented to students, which went under various labels, sometimes called economic nationalism, which I think is a poor name for it, uh, but, but often described as neo-mercantilist. And the people would always go back to Frederick List as a central figure. And for those who don't know, Frederick List is a, uh, wrote his most famous book in 1841, just before uh, Marx begins to write about political economy. And, and List is responding to Adam Smith's vision of free trade and trying to say, no, 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 they, you know, don't, don't buy into the Smithian school, rather you, you should buy into a more protectionist view of, of uh, how states should govern their economic relations. And so those are the three camps that are presented and are still presented uh, to this day to students if you walk into any intro uh, class. And then, and then a professor will quickly jump to, you know, and so, you know, this, this, this tripartite debate remains today. You know, we have followers of free trade and we have followers of protections and we have followers of, of radical Marxist thought. And just, I guess, also diving into that that uh, historical tradition, um, what what is meant by the neo and the neo mercantilist thought? So, you know, the, I guess there was mercantilism beforehand, and then this is a new a new iteration of that. Yeah, so that's a really important point. So, so um, mercantilist thought is usually associated with 17th, 18th century European thought. So figures like Colbert, for example, in France, who uh, Adam Smith is reacting against. And so his book, The Wealth of Nations, 1776, is, is really an attack on mercantilist thought saying, uh, you know, what, were, what did these people believe? They believed in colonies and subsidies and monopolies, and all of this was serving uh, a, a kind of elite around the state uh, and 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 the goal of maximizing state power and wealth, uh, and and Smith kind of demolishes that by saying, you know, it's not efficient, it doesn't support individual freedom, and it's not respectful of, of the goals of international peace, uh, and so the, that's the kind of liberal critique. Now, what I'm trying to say with the term neo-mercantilism is that there's then a bunch of people who say. Uh, wow, you know, Smith actually made some pretty interesting arguments there. And so you can't be, you, you can't just repeat the old mercantilist uh, case. You've got to reformulate, if you're a protectionist, you've got to reformulate the argument for protectionism on a more sophisticated basis that embraces some of Smith's criticisms, but still defends the idea that, that uh, both protectionism is important, but more broadly, the government economic activism uh, is necessary to cultivate the wealth and state, the wealth and power of a state. And, and you know, Smith's saying the opposite, Smith is saying, you know, you want uh, self-regulating markets and, and free trade. And, and so these are people reacting against that in various parts of the world. And as I try to argue in the book, like a lot of them are familiar with mercantilist thought and they're trying to reformulate it. You know, they're trying to say, and especially because like if you're interested in political economy in the 19th century and you say you're a mercantilist, it's it's kind of discredited. You know, like the, the Smithian school was so influential uh, and, and seen as kind of scientific uh, that that you can't say, you know, I'm I'm a mercantilist anymore. And so they're reformulating it in these in these new ways. So that's who the neo-mercantilists are. Yeah, that, that's great. And maybe it'd be a good time to dive into the, the first part of the book, which uh, is titled The Listian Intellectual World. Um, and I, I, I take it in this section, you're, you're, you're both trying to show why List is such an off figure. 
um, in these debates around uh, kind of liberalism versus neo-mercantilism, but also maybe why his influence is uh, limited in 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 uh, in all these different ways that you talk about in this first section. So could you give us uh, maybe an introduction to uh, the school of neo-mercantilism that begins to build around lists and uh, maybe specifically, um, as you were saying earlier, some of the concession concessions that they made to Smith in the liberal school and how they responded to the, the Smithian critique um, of protectionism. Sure, so, so as I mentioned earlier, Frederick List's most important book comes in 1841. And uh, the book is it's actually, you know, one of the reasons I think it's so famous is it's a very interesting read, like it's, it's well written, and it's very engaging. And Liz basically says, actually, Smith got a lot of things right. Like he was right to say uh, that uh, people shouldn't focus only on specie as wealth, for example. And so this is kind of Smith says the problem with the mercantilists is they thought specie was wealth. And, and so they're always trying to get a balance of payment surplus. And and Liz kind of said, gold, right? meaning gold or silver, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and Smith said wealth is much more than that, and and uh, and so you shouldn't be so fixated on kind of having a balance of payments surplus through all these protectionist mechanisms and everything. And and Liz kind of comes along and says, yeah, you know, that's like that's that's a good point that wealth is much more than that. And in fact, uh, at the center of Liz's book is this fascinating idea about productive power. That, that wealth, the wealth of a country comes from what he calls productive power, by which he means like an incredibly wide set of things. It's, it's the, not just the kind of uh, capital uh, and the skills of a labor force, but even its culture and its political institutions and all of these things come together in a kind of a package that he calls productive power. And he, and he thinks that you know, he's writing in a period where Britain is the dominant economic power, and he's saying Britain successfully cultivated this idea of productive power. And that's why they're not just the wealthiest country in the world, but the most powerful country in the world. And underlying that was industrialization, like they successfully cultivated industrialization. And they did it, he argues, through protectionist mechanisms. And then he says, and then Smith came along and the whole Smithian school and said, free trade is now what you should do. And he, and he kind of says to to his German colleagues, but then he also lives in the United States. So he's saying it to his American colleagues there. And then he lives in France and he says to the French and, he, and he's saying to all these people, look, the British are playing a big trick on you. Like they cultivated productive power uh, by protectionist means and state economic activism. And once they got on top, then they said, oh, let's everybody have free trade because they were the dominant power and free trade would mean that their goods would dominate global markets. And so that's the kind of at the core of the book is a sense that the that the Smithian school is duping everybody. Uh, in the a the way. proverbial kicking away the ladder is, is something that exactly or come, comes yeah. up again and again. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of his most famous phrases where he says the British, you know, are essentially kicking away a ladder that they use to become wealthy and powerful and they don't want anyone else uh, uh, to use it. So it's a very effective uh, metaphor, which is still used by many people today. So that's at the core of the Listian view. And then that, that's, that view uh, is then, um, you know, really picked up uh, across Europe, uh, but in the United States as well, in certain quarters. 
Uh, and then around the world, like it's, it's, I mean, that's why List is studied because he did have global influence. And, and uh, of the thinkers I described in the book, I think there's only one other figure who has that kind of global influence. So in that sense, it's understandable that, that you know, IP scholars and scholars in development studies and in comparative political economy, that these people go to List because he had a lot of influence. But I'm just trying to say in this book, there are lots of other people who also had uh, interesting and often quite different uh, conceptions of neo-mercantilist thought that, that also deserve attention. And one of those figures, right, is, uh, is Alexander Hamilton and the, the American system that gets constructed in the U.S. in the early 20th century that List is kind of taking as an exemplar of the kind of response to British free trade that he'd like to see. Is that right? He's kind of, he's kind of theorizing what the Americans are doing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's List's relationship to the American system, I think, is a complicated one. So yeah. you're, right, you're right to say that Hamilton is the pioneer of that. Uh, and, you know, I begin the book with Hamilton because, in a sense, I think he's the earliest figure to develop a sophisticated critique from a neo-mechanical standpoint of the Smith argument. And so his report on manufacturers is actually an engagement with Smith. Like, it's a very sophisticated, even though it's a government report, and that comes in the early 1790s. So it's quite early on. Um, but, um, but what's interesting about Hamilton, I think, sometimes missed by scholars in my field, like probably less so in, in history, but scholars in my field often see him as a protectionist, but he, he had very limited views about protectionism, like he actually thought other ways of promoting industry were better than protectionism. So I don't see him as a strong, you know, neo-mercantilist uh, figure, but he is the figure that first pioneers the idea uh, behind the American system, which comes to fruition, especially, say, by the 1820s. Uh, and interestingly, List uh, moves to the United States in the mid 1820s and gets involved with a number of the thinkers who were promoting much stronger protectionist views than uh, Hamilton had. And so List and, and List becomes very well known in those circles. And so his first, like I've mentioned, his most famous book is in 1841, but his, his best uh, early work comes in the late 1820s when he's living in the United States. And it's a work that's read by many of the defenders of the American system. And so to some extent, the American system is informed by List's uh, ideas. Um, but in my view, um, uh, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, like there's, there's ups and downs of American projections in the 19th century. The, the uh, during the Civil War and after the Civil War is when you get the second big wave of American protectionism. And that's the, the kind of Republican, uh, you know, the new Republican Party, the Republican style of protectionism. I don't think that's actually informed much by List. I think it's much more informed by Henry Carey, who's, uh, I mentioned earlier, there are two figures who kind of had global influence. I think Carey is the second of those figures. And sometimes Carey is described as a Listian figure, but I try to argue in the book that that's a bit misleading. He, he wasn't much interested in List. In fact, he's very critical. Uh, people around him are very critical of List. Uh, and he develops a very different style of neo-mercantilist thought. And that's the thing that, that um, has the influence in the United States that then leads to protectionist policies, you know, really until the 1930s when the uh, U.S. begins to move a bit more towards free trade policies. Yeah, I, I think I think we here are all fascinated by Kerry, and and we'll have plenty of to ask you uh, uh, later on in the interview. But to, I guess to stick with List a little bit, um, one thing that we were interested in uh, are these sort of twin axes of both space and time in in neo mercantilist literature, especially uh, around uh, List and um, the transmission, this the sphere of transmission of Listian ideas. Um, and I think you show very convincingly that while List himself was very committed um, in spatial terms to sort of the nation state as, as the model, as a sort of container 
um, for economic development. Um, a lot of people who were reading List or who were influenced by List were actually thinking through a very different set of geographies. So for instance, uh, you have both imperial thinkers, right? Um, i.e. The, the sort of British protectionists, but also a kind of colonial thinkers, uh, a, lot, a lot of them in the ex uh, sort of British Commonwealth. Um, so I was wondering if you, if you, could, if you could talk a little bit about the, the different sort of spatial configurations that are at play in, 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 the, in the first part of the book around list. Yeah, I'm so glad you've asked about that because it's such a it's such an interesting issue. I, I found that particularly interesting because at the center of lists thought aside from the idea of productive power is, as you were pointing out, the nation state. And, you know, it, his book is is uh, has that in the title, you know, the national system uh, of political economy. And, and he really does believe that to cultivate productive power, you have to have a sense of nationality. Uh, and it's and it's you know it's an incredibly important idea. If you think of the East Asian developmental state in the in the you know later part of the 20th century, the kind of Koreas, the Taiwan's, the earlier the Japanese experience, and and now Xi Jinping's experience in China, you know you you see the way in which nationalism uh, plays a, a, a central role in mobilizing a population behind the cultivation of what List would call productive power. And so List, I think, is very important in developing that 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 really important idea. I show in the book, incidentally, that there are some previous thinkers uh, in Germany and, and the United States and who, who had ideas like that. So he, it's not like he was the first, but he's the first who does it in a really sophisticated way. Um, now, but you, what you're asking about is a really interesting question, which is some people then take that general idea the list has and apply it to non-national contexts. And so um, you mentioned a couple of them. So these are often figures in British colonies, like in my own country of Canada, uh, say 1860s is a figure, Isaac Buchanan is like this, or in Australia, there's another figure, uh, or in India, the most interesting, I think of all um, thinkers in the late 19th century, Ranaday, for example. Um, but then there's even other interesting examples, uh, like in Britain itself, there's some people who conceptualize the empire as the unit that should be cultivating the kind of Listian project. Or if you're in China, uh, you know, there's figures like Wei Young or, or um, or some of these people who in the late 19th century were conceptualizing the Chinese empire, like they don't have a conception of nationalism. You know, that's not the, that's not the thing. Or another would be uh, one of my favorite figures in the book is Muhammad Ali and the Ottoman context, Ottoman Egypt, who's cultivating, you know, this unbelievably ambitious program of, uh, of industrialization, I think is actually the most ambitious neo-mercantilist project in the first half of the 19th century, but without any conception of national identity. You know, he's an Albanian uh, and he's come to Egypt. He kind of captured the state and, and he doesn't think much of Egyptians as far as I can tell, uh, but he's trying to cultivate the power and wealth of the state that he controls. And so you're absolutely, and I, by the way, I, I'm getting off topic there because some of the figures that I've mentioned are not inspired by list. So Ali is not inspired by List, and the Chinese are not either. Uh, but it's just to make the point that that a neo-mercantilist project as a whole can can come, as you say, with many different kind of um, conceptions of the polity. But but just to go back to your point, which is in the Listian school. <laughs> Sorry, I got a bit off topic there. In the Listian school, you're absolutely right that some people were doing that. They were they were neglecting the the national side. Now, having can I just add one thing without talking too long on this point? Um, and that's just to mention that um, 
some of those people who are in like living not in nation states still did embrace the idea of nationalism and so you know this is this is true around today in india for example he's not he's living in a british colony but he's promoting the idea of of uh, nationalism and so it, they did embrace that side of of a list and, and by the way if i can just say one more thing about that this is to remember that people in that in the time period before 1945 most people were living you know, not in nation states, they were living in empires. And so it's not surprising that that was the situation that you know, people are using LIST, but on all these different contexts. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but LIST also did endorse a form of imperialism, right? Like he thought that it was the duty of stronger nation states to civilize um, less productive uh, uh, cultures, right? Uh, uh, absolutely, yeah, not just a form of imperialism. He endorsed imperialism. Okay. So List is, List is uh, very supportive of uh, imperialism. That's part of building the state and wealth, you know, the power and wealth of a state. And, it, and it's an interesting situation because he, you know, List gets picked up, especially in the second half of the 20th century by many uh, uh, thinkers and politicians in regions that were previously colonized, and they just ignore that part of List. Like List, you know, List completely supported imperialism, uh, and these are anti-imperialist thinkers or leaders, and they and they just kind of drop that side. And List, List had very Eurocentric views, and and also views, in fact, that even when countries became independent, say in the Latin American context in the time period that he's writing, he doesn't he doesn't think they should do what he's recommending. You know, this is only for the United States, France, and Germany, and maybe a few other countries that he calls temperate zone countries. Mm. But everyone else he thinks should be commodity exporters to, to the, the core of the world economy. And it, it's, you know, it's a climactic theory. Right. There's a tropical zone, there's a temperate zone. This was common uh, going back to De Hoek, uh, going back to Montesquieu and some other uh, figures in the 18th century, and he really embraces that and makes it at the core of his uh, uh, his view. And so it's yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a part of list which is often not uh, written about, but it's a really central part of his views. Right, he, he thinks like all of Latin America is part of the tropical zone, right? <laughs> yes. like he, 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 yeah. he has a very um, yeah. I, I don't know what he was thinking in terms of what the, what the kind temperate of zone chauvinist. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, and so, he hadn't he hadn't ever traveled, you know, to those regions. So yeah. <laughs> so he seems to be placing a lot of value on uh, these kind of intermediate institutions between individuals and humanity, right? The nation state, these kind of um, smaller intermediate subgroups uh, that can cultivate um, a kind of like implicit democratic associationism, right? Like I think Mill and Tocqueville kind of come up in this discussion a lot. Um, so what 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 was um, the value of having some sort of intermediate um, container for these guys. I mean, what, why the nation state as opposed to just all of humanity? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question because I think the answer for List is fairly straightforward in the sense that um, he does embrace a cosmopolitanism as a long-term goal. And so, and again, this is a side of List that's often not written about where List, um, you know, List says, okay, so List says to, to the Germans, the Americans or the French, he's saying, you've got to cultivate your own state wealth and power to catch up to Britain. But once you've done that, we should be having a, a universal confederation of nations and, a, and kind of world peace based on that basis. So he embraces a kind of liberal cosmopolitanism as his long-term goal. But his point is that you can't get there until you're equals. You know, that seems to be his, his uh, the, the way he conceptualizes that. And so uh, to go back to your question, the point of the intermediate uh, category, the nation, 
is to address the question of international inequality, you know, inequality between countries, which he thinks is extreme in the period he's living in. And so, and so if you embrace free trade, if you embrace cosmopolitanism in a context of a high degree of inequality between countries, you're embracing empire. Like that's what he thinks. You're embracing the British, you know, British hegemony. Uh, and so, and so really the point of the intermediate category is to catch up and to create uh, equality between regions of the world in order then to go to the cosmopolitan thing but if your question is more general because that's list right and and it's very idiosyncratic to list there's very few other neo-americanist thinkers who have that kind of long-term liberal cosmopolitan view because they're so critical of free trade thought that that it's just they don't buy into that uh, but list is a bit distinctive in that way many of the others i think do genuinely embrace the nation as the ultimate uh community and so take uh, Liang Xichao, for example, in China, you know, he's, he's basically uh, like the nation is everything. Uh, and, and you should not be thinking of uh, a cause, you know, he's very critical of Confucian cosmopolitanism, for example, which he just thinks is unrealistic. And, 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 and it was a, pro, you know, it's the problem of China <laughs> in his view that they embrace this cosmopolitanism. You need to focus on the nation, that's the core. Yeah, that, that, that's super interesting. I think it gets a little bit into, um... I guess something that we we talked about um, around sort of the temporal axis of a lot of neo-mercantilist thought, because I feel like it, in a way, a lot of their policy, or in a way, a lot of these neo-mercantilist thinkers could be read as just offering sort of short or medium term policy advice to, to statesmen or to policymakers. When, as you show, there's, it, well, both in the figure of List as a sort of inheritor of, of kind of enlightenment or uh, almost Smithian theories of uh, uh, stages in history, right, and, or civilization. Um, but also in other parts of the world, you have neo-mercantilist thinkers coming up with their own sort of longer term, I think, uh, either philosophies of history, if you want to call it that, but, but uh, it, it's never quite the sort of short-term policy advice that we, we tend to think of when we think of like industrial policy or, or, or uh, tariffs or something like that. I was wondering if you could uh, speak a little bit more on the sort of temporal horizons of these different thinkers. Yeah, I, I, I personally find that really, really interesting. So in the East Asian context, I think is where it's the most interesting uh, place, because if you're a neo-mercantilist in Japan, say, or in China, or in Korea in the mid to late 19th century, which is a period when a lot of this thinking begins to uh, come up in that region, um, you're confronting, you know, conservative Confucian thinkers who are saying, to, you know, you're saying, let's cultivate the wealth and power of our state. And they're saying that's just not, you know, a moral thing to do. Uh, and so what you're saying to those people is, well, it may not be moral in the short term, uh, but look, our state's being clobbered, you know, in, in international competition, we're, we're about to be conquered and, and look at the opium wars, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so we've got to defend the power and wealth of our state in the short term. And then they say, not all of them, because Liang, the example I just gave, doesn't do this, but many of them do. They say, but once, you know, this is a short-term thing, don't worry. You know, we still embrace the long-term Confucian values and, and that's where we're trying to head. It's just, it's just, we're falling so far behind, we're gonna get conquered, you know, this is what you've got to do now. And so it does have to do with that international inequality issue, which, you know, this, it's basically the uneven spread of industrialization across the world in this period is what is provoking 
uh, neo-mercantilist thought everywhere. Because you know, if, if you're sitting in China or Korea and Japan in that period, and you're being pushed to embrace free trade under the unequal treaties in the Chinese case, or or when the, you know uh, Perry comes into Japan, or the Koreans are experiencing it uh, from Japan itself, um, uh, you know, free trade just doesn't look like the way to industrialize because it just leads to a huge influx of, of foreign products and it makes it very difficult for your own industries to start up. And so it's natural that in that context of uneven industrialization, that you're drawn to this idea of protectionist policies as a way to cultivate state power and wealth. And also that you see so clearly, you know, if you're in Asia, you see so clearly that industry and modern industry is what gives you wealth and power because that's, you know, you're you're being, uh, you're you're being subject to the power of Western states that have got that. I mean, I think that example of sort of how the situation in Asia, say, um, prom promoted these ideas or made these ideas seem so uh, to make so much sense um, is is interesting and gets at one of the arguments that one of the core arguments I I, I took from the book, which is that you know neo mercantilism. Um, maybe unlike liberalism in the tradition of Smith or Marxism in the tradition of Marx is seems to originate independently um, in multiple places around the world, such as in East Asia or such as, um, you know, with Kerry uh, in the United States. And I guess I'm curious to hear sort of what, why you think that is and maybe why, why it's so different from those other traditions. And, and do you think it's sort of about the content of the ideas, you know, themselves? Yeah, I think that's a, a difficult question to answer, but it's also a really fascinating question. So I think I'd start by saying, um, it's. I think it's not entirely clear that even economic liberalism only began with Smith. And so some, you know, if you've been reading some of this historical literature showing that there are kind of proto-liberal ideas in China, for example, in the 18th century, uh, because it's becoming increasingly commercialized society and and you know, people are beginning to think about how markets work, and uh, and so um, you know, again, you're going to kind of a context. You know, certain contexts are going to lead to people theorizing about certain things. And so, the more you have commercialization, the more you're going to have ideas that are similar in some way to to what Smith was uh, beginning to think about. Uh, and I think the same was true of neo mercantilist thought, where you know, any context where there's unequal power. Uh, and, and there's some degree of commercialized economic activity, uh, unequal power between states, I should say, and, and, uh, and the degree of commercialization within the economy. I think it's not surprising that people come to neo-mercantilist ideas. And I think this, I try to make a point in the book, I don't know how convincing you found this, but I try to make a point that um, I think it's particularly true where there were mercantilist traditions already existing. And those are, you know, in some cases, those go way, way back. Like I provide some examples in the book in the East Asian context, for example, of, of what we should describe, I think, as mercantilist thinkers in the period of the Warring States, which is also a period, you know, so this is, um, you know, a period before China is unified and, and intense interstate rivalry, but in a context of, of you know, agricultural production becoming sophisticated. And, uh, and so there were thinkers at that time thinking about the relationship between power and wealth and how you cultivate it as a state. Uh, and one in particular, uh, Lord Shang, uh, whose, whose um, ideas inform people then in the mid 19th century, because they go back to this kind of, everyone's familiar with the Chinese classics if you're an East Asian scholar, and, and these are natural reference points for you. And so you go, you're suddenly faced with this situation, oh my gosh, this looks like 
the period of the warring states is just on a global scale now. And so we should go back to look at these earlier thinkers who had informed uh, early ideas of political economy, you know, but kind of mercantilist. But it's also true in other parts of the world. Like um, I give this example of the Arthashastra in South Asia, which was also you know, sometimes described as one of the very first works of political economy. And it's a similar uh, point in time as Lord Shang's uh, work. Uh, and, you know, it's again, a kind of a thinker who is, uh, you know, advising the state uh, about how to cultivate power and wealth in the context of trading relationships in South Asia. And again, people in the early 20th century in India uh, go back to that and say, ah, you know, we have a tradition uh, and we should be able to resurrect this tradition. So I, th I th you know, to go back to your question about um, why does, uh, you know, why is it happening in many different parts of the world? I think it's because there were mercantilist traditions in many different parts of the world that then could be revived in this new context where there's a global spread of free trade thought uh, and you're reacting against it. And so you naturally you go to your own uh, indigenous intellectual traditions to do that. Yeah, that, I found the, the sort of historical parallax that a lot of these East Asian thinkers, especially are working with to be especially fascinating. Um, I was wondering if you, just because I found this passage uh, so, so interesting, I was wondering if you could go into maybe some of the, the Meiji era thinkers a little bit more and how, how they look back to, like this would be like Tokugawa Japan, right? Um, and, and the sort of feuding uh, daimyos or the, 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 the sort of smaller political units in, in Tokugawa Japan and how they drew sort of mercantilist uh, inspiration from, from, from that period. Yeah, so this is a really interesting story. And it's not, you know, this is not my work. This is work that his, Japanese historians are doing, uh, historians of Japan are doing. Uh, and, and what they're showing, I just think is absolutely fascinating. It's, it's showing that uh, within Japan, beginning in about the um, early 18th century, um, you know, Japan is increasingly a very commercialized society, you know, and don't forget, like, you know, degree, the degree of urbanization in Japan in the Tokugawa period was, you know, very, very high. Uh, and, and very commercialized agriculture and, you know, very sophisticated ideas. And so you do get the emergence of uh, traditions of political economy, political, political economic thought, and different competing schools, uh, just as you get in Europe in a similar kind of uh, environmental conditions. And, and what, what these historians are showing is that the uniqueness of the Tokugawa situation was this weird decentralized polity where you had uh, the different domains uh, each of which were competing with each other for wealth and power. Uh, and so the, the dominant strand, as I understand the work of this historian, the dominant strand of political economy that emerges in the 1700s into the 1800s is a strand which is a form of mercantilism, saying to a local lord, you know, you can get the most power and wealth for your little domain by exporting and by subsidizing your own manufacturing and subsidizing uh, merchants in order to export to the other domains. And so this is all being done within the context of an autar relatively autarkic uh, country, Japan as a whole. But there's this incre incredible kind of mini states, if you like, uh, within Japan that are competing with each other. And so what's, and, and so out of that, you get very sophisticated political economic thought emerging. And so then when Perry comes in the 1850s and blasts open Japan, uh, that's there already, right? Like a rich tradition of mercantilist thought. And all that happens is they transfer that up after the Meiji Restoration in 1868, they transfer that up to the national level and say, we can take those same, same ideas and apply them to Japan as a whole in its competition with the United States or with Germany or whatever. Uh, and so, um, 
uh, you know, those historians, and I try to reinforce the point by looking at some of the texts of the thinkers in the 1870s and 1880s, I, I think those historians have shown that intellectual foundation is central to the Meiji uh, uh, state-led industrialization experience after 1868. But I also think like the, the specific thinkers who we've often uh, gone to in the 1870s or 1880s, Matsukata or these other people, you know, they reflect this inspiration in their writing. And, and this is a, so like, I, I, you know, I'm just kind of reinforcing literature, which is already in, uh, in, in works on the political economy of the history of Japan, which I think is really important. And I don't think has been taken on board by people, at least in my field. I don't know how much has been taken on board by historians in general. Where, you know, the conventional story still in my field is Japan is opened up by the United States and then imports Listian thought. Uh, and, and, and oh my gosh, how clever they were. They were the one country that saw how brilliant List was and they applied it really successfully. And like there was some of that, right? List is imported in Jap into Japan. Interestingly, Henry Carey is imported earlier and has more influence at the key moment. Um, but, but really it's an endogenous story. Like it's, uh, it's, this is a story where they had these ideas at, a, at this intra-Japan competition that then they extend to the national level. And then the, the conventional story then goes on to say, okay, the Japanese were the smartest because they picked up a list and then they brought it to mainland China, Taiwan, Korea. And that's why East Asia has all these developmental states is the Japanese colonial experience. But the other yes. thing you show is that all these places also have their own indigenous <laughs> mercantilist traditions and why shouldn't they? Right? I mean, exactly. And, and so the story is doubly wrong. <laughs> Like it, it, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Like it's it's not just that Japan wasn't didn't have this kind of importing thing being the main. It's it's not that the importing didn't take place. There was an importation of Western political economy, but it's just I don't think that was the dominant influence initially. Uh, but but as you point out, you know everyone says the Japanese colonial experience was the thing that led to Korean, you know, the foundations of Korean developmentalism. But Korea had its own tradition before the Japanese colonial experience, which in turn was influenced by uh, early um, you know earlier thought in Korea which in turn is influenced by some Chinese thought. And, and all of this has origins, or at least makes reference to, I should say more accurately, makes reference to the Warring States period. And so the point is, there's a kind of regional um, uh, intellectual environment. And I try to show there's a lot of diffusion of ideas. I, I've published another article recently trying to make this case that in fact, that we should see uh, Chinese thought as a core foundation of East Asian developmentalism, when the conventional wisdom is the opposite, that China was kind of the last, you know, to embrace developmentalism, like Japan does it first, spreads to Korea and Taiwan, uh, uh, and then China finally in Deng Xiaoping's era, you know, embraces this idea, but they're the latecomers. But in fact, you know, it's, it's these early Chinese thinkers uh, in the mid 19th century, who in turn inspire some thinkers in Japan and in Korea, uh, and they themselves are drawing on this uh, ancient Chinese thought. You know, that's kind of an origin. It's not the only origin, but it's a origin point of East Asian developmentalism. So we have to, I just think we have to see it more uh, as an endogenous thing within the region. And it just reflects the Western centrism of the way we've taught political economy. You know, we, we tend to focus on Western thinkers and we, I think we haven't given quite enough attention to some of these thinkers in other regions. Well, I'm, I'm glad somebody's starting to. Um, but to, to go back to uh, uh, Robert's question, uh, there does seem to be something at least relatively more unitary about the liberal and Marxist traditions insofar as the professionalization of economics in the 19th century um, continually makes reference to Adam Smith as the founder of their discipline. You see this in Mill, you see this in Marshall, you see this in you know, anybody who writes a textbook starts with Adam Smith as the founder. And of course, there's you know a very rich tradition of uh, 
Marxist exegesis of you know, their Bible as well. Uh, whereas it seems like the neo-mercantilists so often they just say like, look, like we, we can't, um, you know, draw on these universalizing uh, pretensions to knowledge to science. We need to develop our own national uh, ideas about what's right for us and what our local context demands. And so there is something more, I guess, diffuse about, about the mercantilist tradition. Yeah, I think you've actually hit on something very interesting there, which is that this is not true of all, but many of the neo-mercantilists are emphasizing uh, their anti-universalism. So they, they even though they may uh, have <laughs> inspiration from universalistic uh, or ideas that have universal pretensions, uh, uh, they don't want to emphasize that because they're trying to say, like say in my own country, you know, there's a Canadian approach to political economy, uh, or there's a there's a Japanese approach, or there's an Indian school of political economy, is what Ranade is arguing in the late 19th century. Uh, and and this is a, this is a phenomenon that you see in the late 19th century as a reaction against classical economic liberalism, uh, and and interestingly, you know, it provokes a reaction even in the English liberal school by the 1870s or so, where some English liberals are saying, ah, we're seeing everyone saying, you know, our ideas don't don't relate to their own particular national context. Maybe that's true. You know, maybe maybe English liberalism is only applied to us, our, our unique example. And so there, that's a that's a widespread thought. Now, having said that. Um, I think it's interesting how um, there are some neo-mercantilist thinkers who have a very universalistic conception. And Kerry, again, the fascinating figure, uh, is one of those who really thinks his project is a universal one. Uh, and, and he wants to build a kind of alternative universalizing science of political economy to the Smithian one. But as you're pointing out, that's, that's a bit the exception. You know, most of them are. So even when you import list, you're saying, yeah, this is this guy list, he had some interesting ideas, but look at how distinctive India is. And, you know, we've got to modify it in all these various ways. Whereas if you're a follower of Smith and you're importing Adam Smith's ideas in Japan, say in the 1870s and 80s, you're usually saying the opposite. You're saying there are universal rules of political economy and that's why we need to read Adam Smith. And Japan is no different, you know, than than Britain. And so there, I think you're right to say there's a different culture <laughs> around the Americanist thought than there is around liberal thought and certainly around Marxist thought. Um, I guess maybe now might be a good time to turn to, to Carrie, who's come up a couple of times already today. And uh, listeners of our podcast will, will be somewhat familiar with, with him from our episode with Ariel Ron earlier, earlier the, um, in 2021. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was really fascinated to read these chapters. Um, you know, I was sort of familiar with Carrie, but hadn't really appreciated the sort of extent to which first he was so influential across the world or in many different countries, um, and also to which he was sort of very much distinct from List, both in terms of coming to the ideas to a large extent independently, and then also having, as you were saying, you know, very different ideas in, in many respects, so certainly not all. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if you could sort of give a little bit of an outline of, of uh, neo-mercantilism in the tradition of Henry Carey. Sure. So let me say right away, uh, like I'm in the same boat as you. Like I, I had not read Henry Curry until whatever, uh, three years ago, three or four years ago. Uh, and um, I don't think Harry, Henry Curry appears in any IP textbook that I know. Like it's actually a really strange uh, phenomenon. And yet, as you point out, he was influential across the world. And, and it's even more striking because he was 
you know, I try to show in the book, and I don't know how convinced you were by it, but I, th I think the evidence is pretty convincing that he was the more influential figure in some of the key late industrializing protectionist experiences that we have. So one would be Bismarck. So that the German tariff of 1879 is influenced more by Carryites than by Listian figures. And of course, the American experience uh, in, in the second half of the 20th century is very much a carry uh, informed um, style of protectionism. And so, yeah, so you're asking what's distinctive. So what, um, <laughs> so there's a few things that are similar, but there's a huge number of things that are different. And so the things that are similar are, you know, a belief in protectionism as a tool of uh, bolstering state power and wealth, uh, and, and a kind of a skepticism of free trade thought in that general kind of way, and a belief in industrialization, and, you know, a few other things. But, but the difference is, I think, the more interesting point. So um, where to begin? I, I could go on for hours and you don't want me to. So let me just mention the things I think are most interesting. One is um, one is his what I call social style of neo-mercantilism, where he, you know, List, if you read List's 1841 book, uh, you don't get much of like, like how are different classes or how are, how, you know, what does this mean for domestic inequality? That's just not in List. It's all about the productive power of the nation as a whole. Like it's a kind of aggregate conception of national wealth. Whereas carries very interesting distributional issues within the country and, and how free trade is benefiting a merchant uh, uh, class uh, and hurting the farmers uh, and, and hurting the, uh, the manufacturers and, and laborers. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's a kind of a class dimension to uh, his thought, which is just really absent from List's 1841 book. Uh, and so that's kind of interesting. I mean, it's, it's strange in Kerry because there are other neo-mercantilists who also have this social dimension. And, and what they do is they say, okay, so we need to put up a tariff because that's gonna help, but then we should also have a welfare state, you know, or some redistributive, practices of a state to, to bolster uh, equality within the country. And that's not what Kerry says. Kerry says the tariff alone will do it. And, and this is where I think there's a nice parallel to Trump, right? Where Trump is sort of talking about, you know, huge domestic inequality problems caused by free trade. Uh, and how are you going to solve them? Well, he doesn't go to a welfare state, he goes to the tariff, you know, and that's the Kerry uh, tradition. Uh, and and Kerry, so Kerry puts enormous emphasis on what a tariff might do to bolster um, uh, social inequality within the country. So anyway, that's one issue that where he's different than List. Uh, another is that he's interested in some issues that seem that make no appearance in List, like environmental issues <clears throat> or gender inequality, for example. Uh, and uh, so on the environmental side, for example, um, he becomes very interested in Justus von Liebig's ideas, which are becoming influential. And that if you've had Ariel run on, Ariel has some great stuff on this. Uh, so I'm delighted that you've talked to him already. Uh, and, and uh, you know, this is a kind of a, a chemist, agricultural chemist, who starts being read by political economists. Carey, I think, is, I think, one of the first to really popularize the importance of this chemistry ideas about soil science. Uh, but then Marx becomes very interested. You know, the, the people who are Marxists today who say, oh, Marx was actually an environmentalist. It's usually through this stuff on soil science, which in turn came huh. from Justus von Liebig. And, huh. and, uh, but Kerry did it first, right? Like Kerry did it before Marx. Uh, and so Kerry was, uh, 
basically says export-oriented monocrop agriculture is, is bad environmentally. And so one of the reasons why you want to be protectionist is to get away from that, to have agriculture refocus on the domestic market, where it can be not monocrop, but rather you know, diverse cropping and, and have cattle, which can in turn produce manure, which can you know, make the soils more... Um, more healthy. And so it's, it's quite a sophisticated argument, but it's not, you know, Kerry's doing it. A lot of other people, Marx is getting interested in this by the mid 1860s. Uh, and then the gender stuff is very interesting, I think, because Kerry uh, makes a case that free trade contributes to gender inequality uh, in, in ways that it's encouraging um, exploitation in factory, you know, export-oriented factories, and, and also that, that uh, the, you know, people are leaving the land, and, and that's leaving, uh, uh, like men are migrating, say in the Irish case, or uh, other countries that are experiencing this, and women are left in a very precarious position. And so it's very interesting where, you know, he's, he's, he actually says, uh, essentially, that neo-mercantilism cannot be successful without uh, uh, being aligned with the project of promoting gender equality, and vice versa. You know, you can't promote gender equality without having neo-mercantilism. And so, I, I don't know how familiar you are with um, the literature on kind of early feminist political economy in the 19th century, but books that talk about that are often describing how there's interesting liberal traditions of a feminist political economy coming up with Harriet Martineau or figures like that. Uh, or in the Marxist tradition, you know, there's early writings um, in, the, in the Marxist tradition applying feminist ideas to Marxist political economy. But most of those works don't identify that there was, this is also going on in the neo-mercantilist tradition through Carey, interestingly. Uh, and so he's a, and I think he picked that up a little bit from his father, Matthew Carey, who was very interested in, in issues of gender inequality. And I think that's partly where he, he came from that. But, um, but but uh, yeah, I think there's more to say about that. I hope other people uh, research that more. Okay, um, <laughs> I told you I could go on for hours. Those are only a few of the ways in which uh, Carrie is different. Can I mention one more without, without boring you? Yeah, please do, uh, please do. Uh, and, and that is that Carrie was an anti-imperialist. Uh, and so, you know, List endorses imperialism and Carrie is very much against that. And, and as part of that, he uh, is really not uh, it doesn't have the same kind of Eurocentrism or Western centrism that, that is in List's work. So just give me an example. List, List has a whole section of his book about history. And the history section uh, tells the detailed history of various European countries and North America and Russia. And that's it. It's like no other, the history of no other part of the world is relevant to developing a theory of political economy. Whereas Carey is, you know, very interested in Indian history. In fact, he, he highlights Indian villages being a kind of model of the associationism that, he, that he's trying to promote. It's kind of small clusters of industry and agriculture working together behind protectionist tariffs. Uh, he's very interested in Latin American history. He, you know, he writes about other parts of the world and, and, uh, and, and he's very critical of civilizational discourses, you know, which are very prominent in, in, your, in Western thought at that time, this stadial theories, you know, that, that, uh, that comes out of Smith, you know, that there are stages you go from, from hunter-gatherer through to pastoral, you know, through to commercial societies, and everyone's going to follow this stadial model. Uh, and, Car and, and it's linked often to the civilizational discourse of going from barbarism to civilization. And Carey says, it's Western societies that embrace freedom. They're the ones that are barbaric. You know, civilization is protectionism uh, and building up, a, and anyone can do it, you know? It's not, it's not like List who's saying only what European and North American countries can do this. Anyone can do this and, and should, uh, in his view. 
So, you know, he's just really, really uh, different than, uh, uh, than List. You want me to talk about other ways? Because <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Maybe I, I mean I would love we're, yeah we're we're eager we eager audiences for uh, the, uh, the the Carrie stuff but um, maybe pivoting to the reception of, of Carrie as you mentioned actually, I think but, earlier actually before um, we before we move away from Carrie I did want to ask um, because one one last way that he differs from List right is that he's not a liberal cosmopolitan he does kind of see the end state of of his vision of political economy being the nation and it's it's yeah. very self contained right. Yes, that's a very that's a very important point. Yeah. So List sees this kind of confederation of nations as his ultimate endpoint, whereas List um, Kerry has some very vague stuff to say about this. So I don't want to emphasize it, but he but he vaguely says, you know, maybe one day we'll have free trade, but it won't be a confederation. It'll be sovereign states. Uh, and so yeah, that that makes him. You're right. That's very different. I, I call it kind of a liberal nationalist view uh, rather than the more liberal cosmopolitan view. I think there 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 are a couple of times in the book where you mentioned, you know, Kerry wrote. Uh, many works, uh, including like a you know 800 900 page textbook on on his principles of political economy, and these works were uh, obtuse and never really uh, 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 tr translated or kind of redacted or edited. Uh, so, so I guess my 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 question is why why then were his ideas um, so popular um, outside of his immediate context? Um, why were Meiji reformers uh, uh, taking drawing inspiration from from this uh, uh, American uh, Republican guy, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you had any any thoughts. Yeah, big uh, big puzzle uh, because uh, you know uh, anyone who has tried to labor through Carrie's three volumes <laughs> is pretty exhausted by the end of that process. It's not an easy read, um, but uh, Kate McKean produced a short summary of it. Uh, and I think that's actually what most people read. And that was produced in the 1860s. Uh, and she's a kind of interesting figure. Like, you know, just before COVID hit, I was about to go to the archives uh, to find out more about her and, I, and the archives were shut down, so I wasn't able to. But I, that's one of the things I'm dying to do <laughs> once, uh, once I'm able to do that because she kind of condenses his work in a more readable fashion. And so when you say, you know, What's being read around the world is often that more readable uh, fashion. But having said that, it's still pretty <laughs> difficult stuff to get through. And so people, you know, I quote some people, famous political economists who say, you know, this is one of the worst works of political economy ever written in terms of its ease of accessibility. Uh, and, yet, and yet, as you're pointing out, it seems to have some appeal across the world. And, um, and so it's an interesting puzzle why that is. Uh, I think I think it's partly the kind of populist nature of some of the message, you know, that, that it's combining this distributional stuff with with the anti-British, anti-free trade uh, message. I think it's also that um, Kerry did have these scientific pretensions, even though the work is pretty hard to get through. He he was he he felt like he was putting a protectionist political economy on a scientific uh, grounding in the way that, for example, he doesn't think List did, like List is more historical, you know, inductive kind of style of argumentation. And, and Kerry's trying to say, no, you know, we're developing a science here. Uh, and so for those who were, like say you're in Japan in the 1870s, you're hearing a lot about the science of political economy, which really means British style liberal 
a political economy. And yet here's this other work saying, actually, there's another science, you know, a science of political economy that defends protectionism. So I think that might be part of the um, uh, part of the appeal. But there, but there is a, an interesting part of this story, I think, um, at least for me, which is why then did it kind of die out? And so like list remains appealing, right? Like, like people continue to read list into the 20th century and, and even through to today is a major figure. Everyone knows him. And yet Carrie, you know, kind of goes by the wayside by, I think really by, um, well, I have an example of an Ethiopian thinker in the, in the 1910s, uh, in the 1920s, who's very interested in Carrie, but there's not really many after that who I can find who have who are majorly influenced by, except incidentally, this is not in the book, but I, I have found some green thinkers, uh, you know, the kind of smallest beautiful types before Schumacher, who are interested in Carrie because he's got this kind of decentralist thing going on in the book. Like right. he wants protectionism, but he also wants these local centers of attraction, he calls. And there's some early uh, green thinkers like uh, Leopold Kor, who's a huge influence on E.F. Schumacher, uh, who, who cites Carrie. So anyway, there may be some figures later on. But for the most part, people who are interested in neo-mercantilist thought, which Greens are not, um, Carrie isn't the figure. And, and I think it's because the work, despite its scientific pretensions, uh, was so out of keeping with what e economics and political economy were generally become in the early 20th century, which is more formalized and, and deductive often, uh, that, that, uh, that, that you know, and nobody kind of updated it. And, and it's a bit of a mystery to me as to why nobody took the carry argument and, and made it more formal uh, in a way that might have appealed to a more 20th century political economy. But the fact is nobody did. And so it kind of, it, it, so it kind of fell off. One last thing on Kerry, and then maybe we, could, we should move to, uh, to East Asia. Um, in the book, you, um, you argue that he's a conservative in some respects. Uh, and I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that. Does that have to do with um, the way that he was received or who is publishing his work? Or um, because, you know, I mean, his, his anti-imperialism, pro-feminism and pro-environmentalism uh, is very different from the kind of um, throne and altar conservatism we're used to hearing about in the 19th century. Um, so yeah. what was it that made him a, a conservative figure to you? Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's a good question. So um, I guess when I used that word, I was thinking more of his views about property and, and, um, yeah, he you know he he doesn't want uh, redistributive measures actively. Like he doesn't want an active state, uh, and he's hanging out with these Philadelphia industrialists. Like it's very much an elite circle that is his social circle, and he, you know he's not interested in left wing radical critiques of capitalism uh, at all, uh, and he's very hostile to that, those kinds of ideas. And so in that sense, I guess I describe him as a conservative. It's also interesting that people who picked him up, like say in my own country in Canada, Isaac Buchanan is the key figure. And Isaac Buchanan was known as a friend to labor, but very hostile to communism, you know? And so it's this kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of like the Gustav Schmaler, you know, in Germany, who, who you know, is supporting uh, social welfare state even, you know, uh, but from a very conservative standpoint of preserving capitalism. Uh, and, and in a sense, uh, you know, protecting it from the left-wing critique that's emerging at that point. I see Kerry in a sort of similar uh, vein, but, but you're right to, to uh, challenge me on that in the sense that some of his other views, you know, <laughs> don't sound so conservative. So I'm, I'm glad you raised that. I guess one thing I'm, I'm curious about, and this I think builds, is sort of rooted in the Kerry versus List comparison that we've been discussing a bit, but it also does sort of build out to the broader um, picture that you paint um, is this idea of 
uh, defensive versus sort of, I'm not sure, offensive or versus out, outward focused neo-mercantilism. And so, because um, it, it seems like a lot of the, the people who you're describing at least at the uh, started from a point of basically what what you term a, a defensive neo mercantilism of basically trying to ensure sovereignty for a given state you know sort of build up a state's ability to control its own affairs control what's going on inside of its its borders um, but this bleeds very sort of quickly or, or easily into a more outward focused or imperialist project. And, you know, I think you describe how List himself sort of uh, began as more of a defensive neo-mercantilist, but became very much an imperialist and, and interested in, um, yeah, in projecting power outwards and, and creating colonies and these sorts of things. And um, I'm curious, sort of, is that, you know, is, is it possible to have a stable, because it, in many ways, the, the, the defensive version is fairly appealing, right, of, you know, sovereignty for uh, individual national nations and that sort of thing. Um, but it also seems like it, yeah, it can be either adapted by by policymakers themselves or else just perceived by others as becoming an offensive, threatening version of the same project. So do you think it's, is that inevitable or is it possible to have a, like a stable defensive neo-mercantilism or, or are there people who were able to articulate that sort of view? Yeah, I, I think it is. Um... Like I like I like the question because I think I think you're right that it is a tension in the thought, uh, and and you're I, I like the way you characterized it in the sense that a lot of these people start defensively but then are kind of drawn to oh once it worked <laughs> look look how we could conquer others, um, but um, but I I think some of the thinkers are very clear in the boundaries they're putting around the like the need to stick with the defensive model, and so Kerry is one of those you know he's an anti-imperialist thinker and and so. Um, one of you was asking me earlier, you know, just clarifying that his view was a kind of his end state was a, was a one of sovereignty respecting nations. You know, that that's his end point. Um, but um, but it's also true of some other figures. Um, so just to give you some examples. Like, okay, this is sort of a strange thing about neo-mercantilist thought. At least it was for me initially when I encountered it. But then I began to think it actually really made sense. I just hadn't thought it through. I think before, and that is that a lot of these neo-mercantilist thinkers are. Uh, pioneers of the idea of multilateral institutions, which mm. were just curious, right? Mm. Like, like I associate right. the kind of birth of uh, liberal, uh, uh, the birth of multilateral institutions with liberal, the liberal traditions of the League of Nations and all this kind of thing, Bretton Woods institutions. Um, but actually, like some of these early <laughs> ideas about international economic institutions came from the neo-mercantilist side. Instantly, List himself you know, had, uh, came up with the idea of a World Trade Organization uh, in the 1830s. And, you know, maybe that's even the first one. I haven't had time to figure out if that's one of the first, um, but very early on, right? And, 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 and it actually kind of makes sense because uh, if you're a free, if you're a Cobdenite, like a Cobdenite free trader in the mid 19th century, you're saying everyone should just, you know, go free trade. You don't need any institutions, just do it unilaterally. And yet here, if you're a protectionist, like List is, you're saying, uh, no, you know, I want people to be protectionists, but then immediately the question is raised, well, how do they relate to each other? And you're going to have to negotiate, right? You're going to have to negotiate trade between two protectionist countries. And so it's natural that you begin to think about, well, what are, the, what are the patterns of that negotiation? Maybe you need some multilateral form in which to do that. And that is the, the conclusion that List comes to in the 1830s. Incidentally, that's not in his 1841 book. And so it's only in his unpublished 
uh, <laughs> essay, which uh, he submitted to a prize competition in France, which actually is the basis of the 1841 book, but he pulled all kinds of stuff out of it when he published the 1841 book. And that was one thing he pulled out of it was originally he proposed a World Trade Organization. But there are other people like this too. So the Romanian thinker I described in the 1930s, who becomes, I think, the most famous protectionist thinker in the interwar period, um, Menelishku, who's basically uh, proposing, so this is going back to your question, he's, he's saying, everyone should be doing this. Like the League of Nations is wrong to be promoting free trade. Everybody should be protectionist instead, uh, but do it in the context of a multilateral order such as the League of Nations. And if you do that, uh, we will have greater equality among countries in the world. He calls it a socialism of nations would be promoted as opposed to the League's free trade orientation, which he thinks is creating inequality between countries. And so it is very much a kind of a progressive, uh, I, I use that in quotation mark, but progressive vision in the sense of uh, promoting inter-country equality. And in turn, he says that'll lead to greater world peace. So the vision the league is set up to do, you know, to, the, the, the vision of peace is fostered by protectionism. You know, not by free trade. And so, like flipping Cobden on on his head, you know, this kind of case. That's also true of Sun Yat-sen, who I think is one of the most interesting of the mercantilist thinker, neo-mercantilist thinkers. So, Sun Yat-sen in 1920, you know, uh, proposes. If, I mean, I'm exaggerating here, but proposes a proto-World Bank, right? Which is uh, he calls it the International Development Organization, which is. I say I'm exaggerating because it's only going to lend to one country. It's designed only to lend to his own country, China. Uh, but it is a kind of a public uh, international development institution, which, which, by the way, at the Bretton Woods Conference in, in, uh, in 1944, the chi China was represented at that conference. It was the nationalists, not the communists, obviously. Uh, but the nationalists uh, cite that. And like in the very first speech by the head Chinese delegate, he, he talks about Sun Yat-sen's 1920 book and says, I hope we can fulfill this. And then at the end of the conference, it's, it's such a fascinating story. At the end of the conference, there are even American, I, I found this American journalist saying, ah, you know, the creation of the World Bank, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, brings to fruition Sun Yat-sen's vision, you know. And so there are lots of people who saw this, that it was a neo-mercantilist who had this idea of, of multilateral development. Uh, finance. So anyway, that's a long-winded answer to your point about do you always have to be offensive? Because here are some people who are putting the idea of defensive neo-mercantilism within a multilateral framework of sovereignty respecting nations. Yeah, the, the example of Sun Yat-sen uh, proposing uh, an international development bank was just so fascinating to me. Um, and it gets at some of what, what's distinctive about um, the East Asian mercantilist tradition, drawing on uh, you know, their extensive histories. Um, namely, it seems like they want um, more export orientation, but also more ac government activity uh, internally to the economy. Is, is, is that right? Uh, not all of them, but many of them. Yes, that's true. So in the case of Sun Yat-sen, yeah, very ambitious ideas of, of domestic state uh, intervention. Uh, and so it's, it's really, you know, <laughs> like his, his ideas after World War One are like modernism on steroids. Like the, it's just, uh, you know, we're going to build stuff everywhere and the state's going to be directing it. Infrastructure, railroads, you know, bridges, uh, ports as big as New York, you know, uh, and, and it's all kind of state led. Uh, and, and so it's, this, is, this is very, very far from Frederick List because Frederick List wants a tariff and he wants a little bit of state intervention domestically, you know, maybe some subsidies, you know, maybe a little bit of promotion of industry here and there. 
but but you know largely a, a market economy domestically. Whereas Sun Yat-sen is is saying yes, we want a tariff, but then we want this huge state intervention to promote industrialization. And you know it's a little bit of a of a kind of a latecomer story, like the. The, the later you are, the more the state has to do to catch up. I think that I think that's Sun Yat-sen's view. And he's quite explicit about it in a few passages where he says, you know, we're not just behind, we're way behind. Uh, and so it's not just that we need a big state, but we also need their capital. Like we can't do this on our own. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, he, his vision of this of this kind of proto World Bank type structure is that we've got to get capital from the West, like the, the, the kinds of things I want to do, you know, building ports, building bridges, building railroads, all this stuff, I need foreign money to do it quickly. Uh, and yet I don't want the Western bankers because they're forces of imperialism. And so, you know, out of that struggle, he comes up with, oh, you know, maybe if this was a publicly uh, governed form of international finance, it would be less imperialist, you know. Uh, and, and interestingly, like, you know, I presented this to my students a few years ago when I was first researching this, and, and they, they correctly had the first question was, well, did he think about who was going to run that institution? You know, like, the, clearly the creditors are going to want to control it, just as they have in the case of the World Bank and the IMF. And he doesn't talk about that. Like, it's a, it's a kind of a naive vision of, uh, of an international institution that will look out for the global good, you know. Uh, and, and he thinks that will be better than the bankers, you know, better than the private bankers. And that, that's his kind of vision. But it is coming from this latecomer position that you need the foreign capital, you know, but you just don't want to have coming in a private form. Yeah, on this exact uh, line of thought, I think you see this, you see this sort of reasoning, I think, repeated um, in your chapter on sort of the immediate, I guess this would be 1930s, uh, sort of debates coming out of especially Latin American countries, right, who are also, um, I don't want to say capital star, but they're really, they're, they're really looking for foreign sources of, of, of capital, countries like uh, Argentina, countries like Mexico. And I think you show that uh, neo-mercantilist thinkers from from these from these places, um, the Western Hemisphere also begin to link their ideas um, with the the specter of, of of sort of sovereignty respecting multilateral institutions or something like that. Yes, exactly, um, exactly, and and they actually have a big impact on the on the Bretton Woods outcomes because of the forty four countries that or forty four governments represented at Bretton Woods, nineteen are from Latin America, and they and they really do pioneer these ideas. But as you point out, it is actually largely neo mercantilist thinking. Like it's they want state led development, they want the foreign capital, but they want it to be managed in a way that's not like the New York bankers that they feel have been exploiting. Uh, or, or you know, other American capitalists that they feel have been exploring, or British capitalists, for that matter, in the case of Argentina. Um, but, but I should emphasize one thing about that, which is that um, List, and even this goes back to Hamilton. There has always been a vision in um, in the neo-mercantilist tradition, going back to the very first ones, like Hamilton, that foreign capital is useful to the project. And so, like I have to say, this is just my own limitation, but. Uh, I, I never fully understood that uh, Hamilton, especially List, like part of the pointing, point of putting up a tariff was to get uh, foreigners to jump over the tariff wall uh, through foreign investment. Uh, and so like I, I naively, you know, when I used to teach this, I, I used to think the main point of the tariff was to promote, say, German manufacturing, a German tariff. But, but actually, like for List, a lot of it is about getting British capital to come into Germany and set up factories. 
Uh, and, and so that's the kind of Listian Hamiltonian and like Hamilton in the report of manufacturer is very blunt about that. And he's actually very blunt about criticizing his fellow Americans who are sometimes resistant to foreign investment saying, you know, you know, we need this. Uh, and, um, and I think what's interesting is by the late 19th century, and this is certainly true in my own country in Canada, uh, there's an increasingly uh, a fear of foreign investment. Like, you know, you need the capital and you might need the technology, but you're worried about the control that comes with it. Uh, and, and you don't see that in, 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 uh, in List, uh, but it becomes a prominent feature of neo Americans thought later into the early 20th century. And for obvious reasons, you know, they, they've seen what happened to Egypt or the Ottoman Empire or other, other contexts where foreign borrowing led to control, you know. Uh, and so it becomes then the struggle, I think, for neo-mercantilists where you know you need the foreign capital. You know, even Hamilton said you need foreign capital, but you've got to find some way to get it that it doesn't lead to control. That, um, so, so at the core of Sun Yat-sen's views around this issue of how you get uh, foreign capital, but with, uh, without the control problem, uh, is his vision of this international institution. What's interesting in Sun Yat-sen's case is that that is linked to uh, uh, thinking in China, uh, kind of Confucian thinking about ideas of international organizations. And so there are beginning to be these ideas of stages of history um, where you're, you're moving through these stages and the final stage is a kind of cosmopolitan stage of, of a world federation. And this is getting popularized in, um, in the early 20th century. And Sun Yat-sen, interestingly, in his 1920 book that is referenced to the Bretton Woods Conference and incidentally referenced by Xi Jinping in more recent years, uh, makes reference, direct reference to this idea of this final Confucian stage uh, where we'd have a world, a, a kind of a, a world, um, a, cosm a cosmopolitan world at the end. And so Sen Yat-sen is one of those East Asian thinkers who you know, wants neo-mercantilism as a stage, but ultimately wants a, a kind of a more cosmopolitan uh, world. Not, not the vision of Yang, but, but this is the vision of Sun and many other East Asian thinkers. So then is, is, is the influence of Confucian thought on the neo-mercantilist tradition then limited to cosmopolitanism or does it have uh, broader implications for the way that um, these thinkers are developing their ideas. I mean, when I think about Confucianism, I think about a few things. One is, you know, this, this cosmopolitan idea, but also an emphasis on the morality of the rulers and the elite, you know, so in terms of like who's controlling uh, these projects, but also on um, building state capacity and bureaucratic um, organization and the ability to actually, you know, get stuff done uh, via elites. I mean, you, you can sort of trace this up through um, the East Asian developmental state that we see in the, the late 20th century, right? Um, it, it seems more activist and more um, muscular, right? I mean, so part of that is, you know, they're, they're coming late and they need to catch up and so they need to do more, but is, is that also, um, is that related to Confucianism? Yeah, I think it's a controversial subject because there's okay. so many different strands of Confucianism, but I, th I think you're certainly right to say that um, there were Confucian thinkers who were able to merge neo-mercantilist thought with, with the ideas in Confucianism that you're identifying. Uh, and so, uh, and you could, yeah, you could do that merger. You know, you could do that merger in a way that um, justified uh, quite an activist state. Uh, and 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 so Confucianism, in that sense, was useful. Um, but it was also a pro. Like I identified earlier, it was also a problem for many neo mercantilist thinkers because of the conceptions of, of especially neo-Confucianism. Say in a case like uh, Korea. Like it's the neo-Confucians who are really opposed to all this stuff because they think the pursuit of state and power 
state power and wealth is a really immoral uh, activity. Uh, and so, you know, really, and but this goes back, right? It goes back to um, <clears throat> way, way back to uh, the, the warring states period where there was a kind of a debate between the legalists and the Confucians and, and the legalists are saying, you know, we need to pursue power and wealth and this is legitimate goals and Confucian tradition is saying you, you can't. And then there's this, you know, there's a, a number of people that try to merge that together. And it's that merger, which is then um, reinforced in the, in the 19th century by neo-mercantilists. And, and you're right then to say that once, if, you, if you're able to pull off that merger, uh, then you can use Confucian ideas of, of the legitimacy of the state and, and, and its ability to do planning, you know, and these kinds of things uh, that in a way that's very useful. But, but it also has this, this kind of long-term goal issue that I've been talking about, which is potentially useful for you. You can say to your own population, you know, this, this may look terrible, what we're making you go through late industrialization, because late industrialization everywhere is a pretty terrible experience uh, from a social standpoint. Uh, but look, there's a long-term goal here, right? Uh, that's what we're going for. Maybe another uh, uh, stark transition, but I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about um, a fascinating chapter in the book that covers um, the neo-mercantilist thought of Marcus Garvey. Um, and perhaps more broadly, the role of neo-mercantilist ideas in the sort of pan-African movement or the sort of diasporic uh, 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 of, of movement uh, in the 20th century. So um, yeah, how in what ways were uh, was Marcus Garvey a neo-mercantilist and uh, what were the power of his ideas uh, in, in the sort of diasporic context? Yeah, so this is a, a part of the book which I'm sure um, you know some people will find too much of a stretch in terms of my conception of neo-mercantilism because I define neo-mercantilism as the pursuit of state power and wealth through tools of strategic protectionism and state and government economic activism. Uh, and Marcus Garvey is not in charge of a state, uh, and and the project that he outlines is not about an existing state. Uh, and so I call this a diasporic form of neo-mercantilism because what he's trying to do is say to the uh, to Africa and the African diaspora, we need to build a state in Africa one day. Uh, and in the meantime, we need to build up our power and wealth to bolster the prospect of that state existing. And also once it becomes into fruition that we have a good foundation for its power and wealth. And so what he, and so it's not, he's not advocating strategic protectionism in the way that List is, or the way that Sun Yat-sen is, and stuff, because there's no state to do it. There's no state to implement those things. Instead, what he says is, let's create a, an organization that can foster the the economic power of the Pan-African community. Uh, and so, what that means is building a shipping line, the Black Star Line, in which he uh, says to people, buy a share in this. You know, buy a share, uh, and you will be. Uh, uh, a part owner of the shipping line, which is going to contest the, the white dominated shipping lines that are operating in the Caribbean and to, towards West Africa and connecting to the United States. Uh, and, and shipping, you know, think about the time period he's, he's writing. This is kind of really 1920s. Shipping is a key, you know, aspect of state power. And so he's picking that in a very symbolic way, I think. Uh, but he's also saying in industry, we need to build up the industrial capacity and power of the Pan-African community. And so again, you know, can we cultivate our own factories, which will uh, make goods, and but we'll sell them on world markets. Like, don't just sell them to ourselves. This isn't an autarkic project. It's selling globally in an American way, um, uh, but, but through this kind of mechanism of a, 
of a, it's kind of an embryonic state, if you like, is how I describe it, uh, which, which is what this organization, the UNIA, is meant to uh, do. And that vision has, you were asking about the appeal, that vision has enormous appeal in the early 1920s, like uh, the Garvey movement uh, has attraction um, across many parts of the world, including in, in, uh, in Africa itself, in West Africa specifically. Uh, and, and, you know, Garvey's, Gar I think the other way in which there's a parallel to some of the neo-mercantilist thinkers elsewhere is that Garvey looks to them as models. So he cites Bismarck, you know, what is Bismarck doing? Building up the state power and wealth of Germany, you know? And he says, that's what we need to do for the Pan-African community in anticipation of building a state in Africa. Uh, and similarly, um, he looks at Japan, he sees Japan as a, as a real model for how, uh, you know, to challenge uh, the, uh, the existing dominant powers in the world. And he says, you know, how have they done it? They've done it through building up their wealth and power through activist means. And so here's my embryonic state, this organization I've created that's going to do the same thing. It's just we don't have a state yet. And so that's why I describe him as a, as a neo-mercantilist, uh, because I think he's really got a similar mentality. He's just in a different structural position. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was ready to receive your argument in that chapter, perhaps, because I think up to that point, you did a good job of showing how a lot of neo-mercantilist ideas were actually sort of prompted by, uh, in, in, a, in a sort of colonial context, like thinking about pre-independence pre India or something like that, where they were sort of ready to build a, a state uh, uh, and maybe weren't quite there yet, just uh, structurally speaking, but, but trying to build up um, uh, sort of the, the capacity and, and the kind of economic base yeah, uh, and, and, and imagination. In yeah, and so, imagination as well. I'm so glad you mentioned that parallel because I should have mentioned that that um, there are people in the Garvey movement who make that direct parallel to the Swadeshi movement in um, in India, for example. And you know, if you're in India uh, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, like the Swadeshi movement is a very influential movement, saying you know, stop buying British products, you know, and buy Indian-made products. And and the argument is. We don't like the British aren't willing to put up a tariff, you know, because they're trying to get Manchester goods into India. Uh, but we can have our own tariff. It's just going to be the activities of Indians and their consumption behavior, you know. And incidentally, the same, go same thing goes on in China. And Sun Yat-sen is very supportive of this, for example, uh, where, um, you know, the, we think of the Mao jacket. Well, that comes from Sun Yat-sen's clothing, where he's trying to cultivate, you know, a sense of can we, can we you know, have our own consumption behavior, which is distinctive. Uh, and, and because we've got the unequal treaties, we can't put up a tariff. Uh, but we can we can change our consumption behavior, and that's very similar to what Marcus Garvey was doing. And people in the Garvey movement are looking at those experiences of other countries that are or other colonies that are uh, don't have a state, but are trying to promote industrialization through these you know voluntaristic consumer-based uh, uh, movements. And and by the way, the same was true in the United States, right before the before the revolution, as a kind of consumption-based uh, anti-British movement. That's that's such a fascinating piece, and particularly the idea. It's not just that like we're going to boycott a particular brand or something like that, but it's like no, we're going to cultivate a totally different style or a totally different taste in what we wear or what we consume as part of this project, and then you know how that can foster identity around around the these these tastes. That's really that's really fascinating. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground already. Um, the the various and diverse traditions of mercantilism and neo mercantilism that have flourished over the past uh, two hundred years or so. Um, but as we, as we sort of talked about at the top, right, I mean, it's coming, uh, the, these ideas are becoming more popular again after maybe a few decades of um, having disappeared. And you talk about, you know, 
some of the uh, conditions for the appearance of neo-mercantilist thought are structural, namely, you know, the uneven industrialization of the world economy, but also conjunctural, namely, um, increasing geopolitical tensions. And with Xi Jinping invoking Sun Yat-sen and Trump citing Hamilton and indirectly citing Kerry and the Republican developmental synthesis, this stuff can seem pretty dark, um, or at least, you know, um, uh, threatening, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, there are other legacies like um, post-war Japan uh, that point to a more Pacific form of neo-mercantilist political economy. Uh, and as you, as you were talking about, there are objective legacies as well in the form of the forgotten foundations of the Bretton Woods institutions. So I was just wondering, you know, as we wrap up here, um, do you see the neo-mercantilist legacy as in, in this kind of negative light uh, that, that um, it's associated with today in terms of like right-wing revanchist populism, um, aggressive militaristic nationalism, or, or, can it, or is there something redeemable here um, that's maybe underdetermined that, that we can latch on to? Uh, right. So this is not a book trying to promote or not promote neo-mercantilist ideas. Right. I, I, didn't, it, I, didn't, I didn't write it for that reason. I, I'm, I'm writing it for, you know, a very scholarly reason of, I just think we need to understand them because they're influential. Yeah, I guess. You're, you're very neutral. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I stick with that. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but having said that, um, if one wanted to, to, uh, to you know, read into these different thinkers in terms of political projects in the contemporary age, I think what's interesting about neo-mercantilism is that it's had really wide political affiliations. And so it's often been associated with the left. Uh, so Sun Yat-sen would be an example of that, or uh, I give other examples in the book. Uh, but in some cases associated with the right, and you've just given some examples of that. Uh, List himself is a liberal, political liberal. Uh, and so it can be associated with that. So I don't think in an ideological sense, um, in a political ideological sense, uh, it's it's got a clear affiliation. And so just to go to the example you've given of Trump, like, you know, Biden's taken over, Biden is doing neo-mercantilist stuff too. Like it's uh, very much industrial policy, you know, keeping a lot of the... Um, uh, strategic protectionist ideas in place. And so there you have a you know switch of ideologies in a political sense, and yet neo-mercantilism remains the enduring uh, uh, foreign economic policy. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so that's one thing I would say. I think the other point, which I think is implied, or maybe it was actually explicit in your question, uh, is, um, is, is it different when neo-mercantilism is done by a great power versus then when it's done by a subordinate power. And, and I think there is a, an enormous difference there that uh, you know the, the point of neo-mercantilism from the standpoint of its subordinate power is to catch up and, and usually to, to uh, you know, challenge domination that they're experiencing in some way. Uh, and so even when it's done by right-wing groups, uh, it looks progressive in a broad sense in that way. It's promoting inter-country equality. Whereas when neo-mercantilism is done by a great power, you know, it's, um, it, it looks more aggressive, uh, e even, if it, even if it doesn't have aggressive pretensions. <laughs> because if you're looking at your own state power and wealth, if you're a great power, you're inevitably influencing other people, even if you don't intend to. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so that is one distinction I'd make. And, and just to put that in a historical context, I think what's interesting about the Bretton Woods system, for example, which I've done previous work on, I'm very interested in, is that the Bretton Woods system uh, essentially said, 
look, we're going to accept some neo-mercantilism, but, but really we're thinking about in the context of poorer countries, like uh, lower income countries. Uh, the main point of the system is to promote liberal multilateralism amongst the great powers, you know, because that's what went wrong in the 1930s, you know, that's the breakdown of cooperation, etc. Uh, and so they, in a sense, the Brentwood system did make that differentiation that you were implying in your question that, you know, the great powers need to cooperate and abide by certain common rules, but we, we can allow, uh, and really what they had in mind was Latin America in 1944, we can allow Latin American countries, and they also had India and China in mind, I guess, uh, to do state-led uh, industrialization as a kind of a catch-up strategy. And, and, you know, they recognized it was also in their benefit, the American and British planners, because uh, the Americans were aware that Latin American industrialization behind protectionist walls would probably draw on American machine goods uh, and probably would have American multinationals, you know, jumping over the tariff wall and producing in a lot of those contexts. So it was kind of a win-win thing in a way. Um, but 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 that's that is an interesting distinction they made. You know, some kinds of neo-mercantilism are acceptable even within a liberal multilateral order. Just just try to keep the big powers, you know, cooperating with each other. And so that's why when you said, you know, the current moment looks um, worrying from your standpoint, uh, I, I think that's what you're getting at. Like it's, it's when the great powers are involved in uh, thinking about only maximizing their own state power and wealth uh, without any broader systemic consideration. Yeah, that, I, I can see why you'd, you'd find that worrying. I guess, it, oh, this, Chris, did you? This, oh, sorry, Robert, go ahead. Oh, I, I mean, you, sh you should ask your question, because I, I feel like uh, my comment is probably getting a little bit far from the book. So go, go ahead. Oh, I don't know. I just wanted to ask, um, well, you maybe should have gotten, gotten to this earlier, but do you have a sort of take on why this literature is so underdeveloped? I mean, I think at this point, it's pretty clear that this is a fascinating intellectual tradition and that it also has been profoundly important in shaping the modern world. And so I'm, I'm just sort of curious, why has it been so understudied, you know, among academics, I guess? Yeah, uh, so I found myself asking that question many times, because as I said, I didn't intend to write this book. I wrote this book to fill a hole. And I would gladly have had someone else read, write the book, because it, it took a lot of time, even though it was super fascinating to do. Um, and so I did find myself often wondering, why did somebody not do this before? <laughs> Uh, and I have a couple of explanations, but they're, they're more like speculation than they are explanations. Um, so one, I think, is that um, I, think, I think the Cold War uh, was part of it in the sense that there's kind of a binary uh, conception of political economy debates in the Cold War. You know, so you're either on the liberal or capitalist side or on the Marxist communist side. And the idea that there was a three-way debate you know, as they really, although actually in the 19th century, it's even further than three-way because there's autarkic thinkers and there's early feminist thinkers, you know, there's a whole range of broader ideologies. But but, but just to put the neo-mercantilists into the equation, you know, there were certainly people trying to promote neo-mercantilist ideas in the post-war period during the Cold War, but they themselves often got caught up in the binary of Cold War ideological politics. So take someone like Raul Prebisch in the, in the Latin American context who is leading what he describes as a structuralist uh, movement, but you know has many parallels to neo-mercantilist thoughts, kind of state-led uh, industrialization. He's really treading a thin line often. Like um, 
if you if any of you've read uh, Dosman's biography of uh, Prebish, it's really striking. You know, Prebish is being called a communist by uh, some people, and and other people think he's you know, right wing. Like if they're trying to put him in one of the two big categories, which are you in? And so it's. I think that's part of the explanation. And so even probably in Western universities, at least. And and I presume this has been true in the Eastern Bloc too. Like you teach political economy as a binary battle, you know? and and it's just not clear how to put these people in that. And then I think I mentioned this in the book too. I think probably then when the Cold War ends, you get the kind of triumph of liberal economics, uh, and so it's just not really seen as a priority, maybe to be studying you know, these protectionist ideas because protectionism is just so much kind of on the out with the uh, 1990s and the 2000s. Uh, and um, you know, historians need a prompt of the current world and, and to, you know, to pitch to a publisher in 1995, why oh, are you gonna write a history of protectionist thought? <laughs> no, it's probably a bit of a hard sell. Uh, and so maybe that's part of it, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, yeah, so, uh, and then I think there may be uh, one further explanation, which I don't mention in the book, but I have wondered about a little bit, which is that um, the way in which uh, economics, at least, the trend of economics discipline, uh, I think probably discouraged a bit of attention uh, towards neo-mercantilist thought, especially the neo-mercantilists that I've been uh, discussing, because they really were not using formal, you know, it's, it's not formal economics. Uh, it's very descriptive. It's, you know, one of the interesting things about them is very, well, not very few, but many of these thinkers were not trained in political economy. Like they're they're coming out of out of different <laughs> backgrounds, and so they're not. It's it's not a tradition that um, you know is easy to teach in a way from the standpoint of of more formal. Now, having said that, this this you know there have been lots of great literature about industrial policy coming up and about developmentalism now. And so it's become a pretty rich tradition at this point. But going back a few decades, that was much less true. I had a sort of final question comment that maybe goes back to, 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 to Nick's um, question earlier. And again, referring back to, to the, the conclusion um, in, in the book, where on the one hand, I definitely got the sense that as, as, as you had just explained earlier, that when, when sort of great powers uh, implement neo-mercantilist policy, it's much more destabilizing, let's say for the international order than, than when sort of uh, smaller powers or, or uh, even in the colonial context where states are trying to catch up. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I, and maybe this is misreading uh, a little bit, but when you invoke uh, both Trump and uh, Xi Jinping in the conclusion, I did also get the sense that one of the lessons to draw from the book is that, um, let's say Chinese or East Asian mercantilism embodied in someone like uh, the general secretary, uh, uh, Xi Jinping, um, when he's writing, when he's sort of uh, quoting uh, someone like Sun Yat-sen, um, that th there is something that, that one has to think about neo-mercantilism in a more expansive way than maybe uh, like a sort of IR realist, someone like Mearsheimer or Kenneth Waltz would, where it's just strictly about maximizing uh, uh, state power and wealth, because there there are these indigenous sort of cultural attachments as well, right? So so when when she evokes uh, someone like Sun Yat-sen, I, I want to be careful here because I, I don't want to say that it's it's not opportunistic on the part of, on the part of uh, uh, she, but but there 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 are these. He is also invoking like a moral order that 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 has a long history. Um, 
um, in, in, in that part of the world, right? Or um, am I completely off base here or, or no, I th- one of I, the... No, I think you're making a very interesting point. Um, when Xi Jinping did the speech that I quote, and this is in 2016, and it's the 150th anniversary of Sun Yat-sen's birth, and the kind of keynote speeches by Xi Jinping about Sun Yat-sen, and he invokes his 1920 book, and he sort of says, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has in a sense fulfilled uh, what Sun Yat-sen was outlining. We got to catch up, you know, and here we, we've done it, kind of. Uh, that's the sort of message. But he also does something interesting where he says, uh, he, he refers to Sun Yat-sen's work in the Three Principles of the People, which was the lectures that Sun Yat-sen gave just before he died, uh, which you know became very famous. And in Three Principles of the People, um, Sun Yat-sen says, well, when China does catch up, it will have great international responsibilities to the world. And interestingly, uh, Xi Jinping quoted that line in this speech. And so that I think is getting your idea that it's not just power and wealth, we've got some, you know, there's some broader responsibility that comes. And, uh, and Sun Yat-sen outlined some of those responsibilities and Xi Jinping did not outline some of the specific ones because some of them would have been very controversial for him to say. Yeah. Yeah. For example, you know, Sun Yat-sen said we need to essentially lead an anti-imperialist alliance <laughs> against the great powers, uh, and Xi Jinping did not quote that passage. Uh, but he did, he did um, say, you know, the international responsibilities are things like uh, international development, you know, promoting international peace, you know, these kinds of things, which are also in Sun Sun's vision. Uh, and so if what you're getting at is the idea that neo-mercantilism, although it's focused on the cultivation of power and wealth of a state, has some broader visions, I think that's true. And, and that's one of the things I was trying to emphasize um, in this distinction between short-term and long-term. You know, some, the long-term vision of many of these thinkers is, is, is different. You know, it's, it's invoking Confucian cosmopolitan ideas, or in the case of List, liberal cosmopolitan ideas, or so they 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 don't all see this as the you know kind of realist world forever. <laughs> they 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 they've got sta- a stage theory in some cases. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time, Eric. Um, this has been a really fascinating interview. I think our listeners are going to be really really excited about all this content. Well, thanks so much for having me. As I said at the beginning, it's just so nice when people are interested in, in a book that you spend a lot of time writing that I found very fascinating, but you often wonder, are other people going to find this interesting? So if you found it interesting, then, then you've made my day. Um, so see uh, the, the image on the cover, it's, it's, it's quite, is it a, is it a woodblock print? Yes. Uh, I couldn't find credit. Yeah. Is it? Uh, yeah, there's a credit. Uh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. maybe I didn't look. Well, yeah. On, I'll, on I'll the look back out for that. But, just yeah, to say a, it's a really cool, I, it's, it's a, a beautiful really cool cover. cover. I found it quite striking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely love what the designer did with that. I think it's very beautiful. I, I suggested the image, but I had no idea how beautiful they could make it. Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, for listeners who are looking out for the, the uh, who, who, who have already devoured this book, um, what should be looking out for next from, from uh, Professor Heliner? So as I mentioned near the beginning, I didn't intend to write this book. I was setting out to write a different book. And this was a sideline that turned out to be quite a long sideline. But the other book is almost done now, which is an attempt essentially to, uh, I mean, in some ways, a ridiculously ambitious attempt to provide a kind of uh, global intellectual history of IPE in the pre-1945 period. So it's essentially to say to our students, 
you're learning about all these ways in which we think about different ideological traditions in, in international political economy, but they all have very long roots, including even some that we think of as very modern, like environmentalist thought. And so, you know, I go through all kinds of ways in which there were early environmentalists in the 19th century thinking about the world economy and, and how it should be organized. And similarly, early feminist thought and, and um, uh, traditions that come out of kind of cultural forms of political economy. So many of these things that have become uh, very prominent in modern international political economy have long roots, but also making sure that students understand, uh, you know, the early roots of liberal thought or uh, Marxist thought or neo mercantilist thought and trying to put it in a global context. So I have a chap just <laughs> to be careful, I don't go on too long here, but just let me, let me say quickly that, you know, if I have a chapter on liberal thought and it goes through Smith, Ricardo, Cobden figures that students would generally learn, but then there's a, a parallel chapter that goes through non-Western liberal thinkers in this period as well, who developed interesting modifications of those ideas. And similarly, Western Marxism and Russian Marxism, I go through the thinkers everyone would learn, but then I have a, a parallel chapter about Latin American and Asian and African Marxist thinkers and Caribbean Marxist thinkers. And so it's just trying to show people that you can uh, really tell the history of the field from a, from a global perspective. So that's, that's the one that's almost done. I'm really looking forward to get, uh, getting that finished. So are we. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review, which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon. We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.